Hey, I'm Tramika, and welcome back to Deep Dives with Tramika Benjamin, a podcast that's dedicated to giving you an in-depth look at innovative strategies that higher education leaders are using to move their institutions forward. Today's guest is Dr. Lee Goodson. She's the president of Tulsa Community College in Oklahoma. Dr. Goodson recently completed an impressive $20 million fundraising campaign. But what's more impressive than that is how she built this network of investors who help her provide solutions to challenges that our institution faces. Challenges including these tough choices that she's had to make surrounding the pandemic. So today, I've asked her to share with us how she was able to build those relationships and give us a little bit more insight in terms of some of the cultivation that goes into getting this work done. Now, if you enjoy today's episode, you can learn more about Deep Dives with Tramika Benjamin at www.deepdivestv.com. Now let's dive in with Dr. Goodson. Thank you so much, Dr. Goodson, for coming on the show. I'm so excited to just talk to an old friend. So it's been great. But before I get started, I always like to ask, do you mind if I call you Lee? Absolutely not. I would love it. Okay, perfect. So tell me, we are here today. We want to talk a little bit about some of your Clearing the Pathways initiatives and If anybody knows Lee Goodson, they know Lee Goodson because of the work that she did in a matter of 18 months in terms of the amount of money you raised. I mean, if there's a single time that I am out visiting with any of my clients or out in the greater college community, then they say, oh, you work with Dr. Goodson. You know, I'd love to talk to her a little bit about how she's just, she's raising money. She's a beast in raising money. And oh my goodness. And I'm like, if you only knew how strategic this woman is, it's just far bigger than just how you, how you raise money. So before we dig into that, which is something that I am positive that most people want to hear about, I just want to talk a little bit about how unique your situation is up in Tulsa. So if my memory serves me correct, you are, in terms of public college, the provider for first two years um, we are. of students. Is that right? We are here in Tulsa. Back in 1972, Tulsa Community College started. We were given our charge by the legislature and given the ability to collect a local property tax. Some people call that ad valorem. And we were the only public opportunity here in the city of Tulsa for a long time. And then some of the other universities across the state of Oklahoma became interested in Tulsa. We have a a really uh, renowned top 100 small liberal arts schools here in Tulsa as well, in the University of Tulsa. That is an incredible research and doctoral granting and, of course, undergrad institution as well. But some of the university partners of ours got interested in coming to Tulsa. And when that started happening, it was decided that Tulsa Community College, back then Tulsa Junior College, would provide the first two years Ah. And these branches would offer the junior, senior, and graduate level courses and degree granting. So we have been the public provider of the freshman and sophomore classes, as well as associate degrees and certificates. And our university partners have been the providers of junior, senior, bachelor degrees and graduate degrees. So, you know, being that you are the... um one of the, the primary provider for these two years, how are you seeing completion rates? Are a majority of your students completing within the standard 150% of the time? So no, 
we've been working on that since before I got here. President Tom McKeon really laid the foundation. They became part of Achieving the Dream before TCC became part of Achieving the Dream before I got here. So there was a great foundation with some of this pathways work being laid and a good number of pilot or boutique projects that were already in the works. And then, of course, Pathways is all about scaling up, right, and taking those practices and implementing them across the college so that they help with positive impact for all students, not just 50 students or 100 students here and there. So we became part of the Pathways Project, uh, the 1.0 cohort with the American Association of Community Colleges, which, of course, is funded by the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation. And started diving into that work, really understanding our data and realizing that not only was there a lot of work we still needed to do to improve our own graduation rate, but we also, because of the design of higher education in Tulsa, had a tremendous obligation to the community to better prepare students for transfer work. And I can talk about that now, or we can dive into that here in a minute. But we started with one of our funders, the Schusterman Foundation, what's called the Tulsa Transfer Project. Ah, so what are you finding as you were going through this this process and you realized that students still weren't transferring? What were some of the main reasons that you were seeing that students were not completing their first two years within a realistic period of time? What was happening? So for us, we only had one advisor for every 1,100 students. Mm. Six years ago, we only had one advisor for every 1,100 students. We didn't have the ability to have students come in on appointment. You just showed up at the advising office, you stood in line, and you probably never saw the same advisor. So that experience just wasn't there. They had no... It was awful. Right. Students would be in line for three, four, five hours, especially in peak season. So I knew, partly from my experience on the front lines a long time ago, that uh, I I really started my career here in Oklahoma um, as an academic advisor for the College of Education at one of our university partner schools, Oklahoma State University. And I knew that an advisor that had 1,100 advisees was not able to get to all their people. And we couldn't require advising here at TCC. We couldn't mandate that a student meet with their advisor before they enrolled. So students were self-advising. And Mm. I was having dinner with one of my university partner presidents and I, right after I started, and I said, Howard, what can I do for you? And he said, implement mandatory advising because your students are coming to us with all these miscellaneous courses because they're self-advising and they're not getting into the right classes for transfer purposes. So what was happening is our students were taking too many hours. And then when they did transfer, many of those hours didn't transfer to degree. They would only transfer for credit. Now, Lee, how many students do you have roughly? How many, what's your student? We have about 24,000 students. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so now we're talking one for every 1,000 or 1,100. 1,100, yep. Okay, so enter now this problem, mandatory advising. You won to 1,100, that's not going to happen. Right, so we had to scale. Do? Yeah, we had to scale up. We had to hire a lot of advisors for one thing. How'd you and find that money? How'd you, how'd you do it? Well, so we had to repurpose a lot of positions. We went through the college and we had a 
pretty major reorganization process. And there were departments and programs and things that uh, we closed and quit doing in order to fund the things that we knew we needed to start doing. And one of those was mandatory advising. Even through that reorganization process, we did not have enough money to hire the number of advisors that we knew we needed. And so we had not only that issue, but we wanted to have more endowed scholarships. We uh, wanted to build student success centers on every campus. We had raised the money for our largest student success center through one of the economic development packages passed by the city of Tulsa. But our other three campuses still didn't have what we would call uh, comprehensive student success centers on the, on the campus. So we started a campaign and we went to some of our private funders and we said we want to do a $10 million campaign to help fund some of these. And we had our first meeting and uh, we were so grateful that Stacy Schusterman, who is um, a, a strong philanthropist in the community, she agreed to chair the process. And she, along with several other foundations, were at the table. We had our own foundation members at the table, large corporations, One Gas, Tulsa Community Foundation, small businesses, all sorts of people at the table. We had a group of about 12 people on the campaign cabinet. We put a budget in front of them. Uh, we had done a feasibility study with our consultants at eAdvancement and they said that there was an appetite for about a $10 million campaign for TCC. And we said, okay. So we put some numbers to that and we put a budget in front of our campaign cabinet and they said, it's not enough. They said, it doesn't fund the needs that you have at Tulsa Community College. Wow. The $10 million. The $10 million. They said, And it's just, this is the largest higher ed institution in the Tulsa metropolitan area and in Northeast Oklahoma. It's the third largest institution in the state. There's no reason you can't raise more than that. And this all happened in one meeting. So we... (laughs) And so I'm sure your head is like, what in the world is happening? It was wild. It was wild. And so they proposed 20 million. You what? And I, I was like, wow, this is my first ever campaign. I really didn't want to go through a campaign and not be successful. But because I was worried about what the feasibility study said. And I said, okay, I'll take this recommendation. And I know this is what you all want to do. And really, this isn't just my campaign. This is our campaign, of course, because this was really a community campaign. And I thought about it and I thought about it. And I realized that these organizations and groups and individuals wanted to step up in a major way, but they needed a bold enough campaign to be able to do that. So we put a new budget together and new materials together, and we developed a $20 million campaign. Was it $20 million over what period of time? Did y'all have a time frame? We were in our mind trying to get to $20 million by 2020. Okay. And we achieved that. We finished the campaign, I think it was last fall or late summer. So we finished it just about a year ago. So, so we, how long was that start to finish? Because you're being a little modest. Start I think it was, be, it was about 18 months. 
from the beginning to the end. And that included the silent phase. It's impressively. Well, I'll tell you what is incredible. And, and some people, you know, I know I'll talk to my other president friends and they'll say, how did you do that? And first of all, I had an incredible team. We started out with uh, Lauren Brookie and she's, she's moved on to work with one of our university partners, but she was our VP of external affairs at the time. And she's incredible and just a real big community person. And so she was able to garner a lot of support with her interactions. And now we have Carrie Schultz, who was uh, Lauren's mentee in that process. And she's done a great job of wrapping it up. But it, it was the staff, but where it really made a difference was the campaign cabinet. To have people like Bill Major, the executive director of the Zero Foundation on that campaign cabinet, to have Pierce Norton, the CEO of One Gas on that campaign cabinet, Phil Lakin, the executive director of the Tulsa Community Foundation, others that I'm not even mentioning, too many to mention. And then the key was also Stacy Schusterman of the Charles and Lynn Schusterman Family Foundation. And they awarded the lead gift of $5 million. And to have those organizations just step up at the beginning, it really set the pace for the campaign. And so I would say to garner that type of community support at the front end and get some momentum is incredibly important. It's funny because when you're dealing with this type of development, a, a campaign this large in this short period of time, mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, presidents will say, let's quickly hire a consultant. And listen, in full disclosure, you know, I am a consultant. So I'm about to, right. I am going, going to say the antithesis of what I probably should as a business person. But a consultant is, is not going to give you a magic wand. It actually takes you know, sweat equity to make this type of thing happen. I mean, you've got to pull this committee, this campaign cabinet together and you've got to work it. It wasn't the consultant, it was you, right? It was the college's relationship with the community, absolutely. And that went on during that 18 months, mm-hmm. but it had been going on for decades prior to that prior. 18 months. And it's also our campaign cabinet and myself, we have continuously nurture our relationships in the community, not just for raising money, but when you have that kind of awareness in the community of what your college is doing and the efforts that you are making to make sure that students have an incredible experience at your college, then the rest is just everybody doing business together and everybody pulling together to make sure that Tulsa thrives. So you said something, you know, you said this is our campaign and we're doing this together. And one of the things that I've always found very refreshing about you, especially when you um, are thinking about philanthropic work at TCC, and I like to use your own words, is how you engage your investors. So you don't see them as donors. You see them as a partner that partners and, and how they are investing in the success of their own community. Right. So... Talk to me about how do you make sure that this newfound investor doesn't get involved in the day-to-day operations of the business, of the college? Right. So, you know, I think one thing is important. I have a governing board that I personally report to, and that is seven individuals. So if anybody is going to start getting 
involved in management more than you would think. It will be the governing board because that's it's their job to dive in too deep sometimes when something's not going quite right and then let let us manage when they feel like things are going well, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it wouldn't be the foundations, foundation boards or the campaign cabinet's role to do that. But you always have investors that maybe want to get more involved in the details than others. And I would say we have nothing to hide ever. And if we have something to hide, we probably shouldn't be doing it. So what we like to do is keep our investors informed. And we try to do that without them having to ask, right? Mm -hmm. We want to keep them informed. We want them to feel like they are part of Tulsa Community College and that they themselves understand what the student experience is at Tulsa Community College. And then we want them to comment on that. And then we may follow up on those comments. And so we always have a mission moment at every foundation board meeting. And this isn't uncommon. We usually have students come in with a story or tell a student story if too many students are in class that day. But we really keep them in the loop on what's going on within the college. And so doing that just as part of your normal routine is really important. I think the other thing is a lot of people will say, well, she has so many connections or she has such a strong network or, or whatever. And how does, how does she do that? And I think it's just small things that you can do that become habit and that really make it so when you need assistance from one of your community partners or community investors, you don't want that to be the first time you've called them. Yep. You want that to be, to get to know them well enough to know what they might be interested in helping in. And you want them to know your needs well enough that sometimes they call you before you're calling them. And that's just good for students. And that's just good for the student experience in the college. You said something that brings, that's perfect segue into my next question because you said when, when, when you need something, you don't want that to be the first time that you're calling somebody. And I know in the recent months, you as no different than a great deal of other institutions that we work with are dealing with some very hard choices as a byproduct of this pandemic. And some right. of them are hard staffing choices. So do you want to share a little bit about what those choices, the, the, path, the impasse that you have been in and how you leveraged sure. your investors? Sure. So... We have had to have some layoffs at Tulsa Community College. We laid off 27 people. It's always difficult. Uh, These are colleagues of ours that we sit by next door to or see every day. And so that's that's not only always a hard decision, but it's also hard to live with afterwards. We also are not filling over 30 positions, which makes up about 8% of our workforce altogether. There were some programs that were funded by the Campaign for Completion. And one of our investors contacted us and said, hey, what's going to happen with some of these programs that are being funded by the campaign? And I said, well, some of it we get to keep and some of it we may have to go ahead and take some action on. And, you know, that investor was interested in bridging us for a period of time at least to 
make sure that we had continuity and services for students. And that was something that this particular investor offered. It was not something that we had asked for. And so how that works out going forward, we haven't really figured that out yet. But for now, and while we're in the middle of this pandemic, we know that we are able to provide a certain service to students. So I know one of the things that I've always found really impressive um, about you is for some time, you were your own lobbyist for your institution. I mean, you did the work. Um, Well, for a, a, a short period of time, right? While we were bridging from a contract to a full-time person. But I've always been at the Capitol, whether we have someone on contract or whether we have our own person. We do a lot of our, we are busy. I am and expected to be there, yes. Why, why do you think it's important for the president to be in, in, um, at the Capitol? I just think that they need to hear what it's really like. I think the people that are at the Capitol every day know how to help us communicate effectively and they know when it's important to communicate and who to communicate with and how we get that message across. I think that legislators like to hear from who has to actually implement the work. Right. So right now we're spending our time meeting with legislators in the interim via Zoom or in a big room far apart or something like that just to keep them informed about what it's been like here. And I'll have my director of government affairs in the room with me and she'll be able to do some follow-up. But they know that if they want something answered immediately, they can call her and she'll get me to them or they can call me directly. And as legislators, they need to have that kind of access directly to the answers that they're needing for a state agency that they're deciding the funding on. So two more questions. Um, first, right. let's, um, let's double back. So we have these new advisors. What is the ratio now? One in 350. And how are we doing with um, student retention and completion now? All numbers are going up. That's great. <laughs> All numbers are trending up. They're not trending up at lightning speed because we know that these measures take time to implement and take time to make a difference. Right, and it's literally just been, what, a year now? Couple of years, right, yeah. So I'm really proud of the work that we've already done and proud of what the advisors have provided for the student experience and proud that the community has supported it. Pretty phenomenal. It is. Um, Okay, so my last question is if you have Um, And this is a question that I get a lot. So, you know, I'd love to get some time um, with Dr. Goodson because I want to, I want her advice. I want to start a capital campaign and I don't, Mm -hmm. what do I need to pull together? What are the the, the top three things that I need to do to really know if I'm ready to start raising this type of money? What would you tell this president? I would think of the top three to five supporters in the community. And I would start talking to them first to kind of check out the unofficial appetite for it. You need to have a very clear purpose with your campaign. Don't just raise money to raise money. Oh, I need this and George needs this and Tramika needs whatever, you know what I mean? And Janet needs this and 
it, sometimes I'll see these, what I call kind of, um, the I want campaign. <laughs> and it's all these people requesting different things and it's, it's an I want campaign. Well, if I get this and then I get this and, and then they add it up all together and before you know it, it's millions of dollars and everybody's getting something that they want. Those can be successful. I'm not against an I want campaign. I just don't think that they're as compelling for the donors and the investors yeah. and the community. So fully aligning your fundraising goals to your strategic plan is critical. The whole community had heard us talking about pathways for two years before we even started pulling together the Clearing the Pathway campaign. So when we put our plan together, it made perfect sense to them. From their perspective, we were not asking for anything special. We were merely asking for things that implemented what we had already committed to. It wasn't this month's new and fancy jargon of any kind. Right. Thank you so much, Dr. Goodson. This has been a pleasure talking to you as always. I look forward to our continued discussions. And is there anything else in the world that you feel like you want to offer? Tramika, first, I just want to say it's always a joy to talk to you. And we love, um, we love the work that we get to progress in our college um, as a result of working with you. But second, I, I just, uh, maybe a little tidbit is don't be afraid of fundraising. Mm-hmm. So many people think it is foreign or um, uncomfortable or, right? It's just something that they really, it, there's a fear factor associated with with good fundraising. And I say, get that fundraising professional by your side, holding your hand, get your script ready, have your smiles, call your investors on a regular basis. I got all of my confidence from that campaign cabinet when they said, Lee, you can raise $20 million. Let us help you. Ah. And just don't be afraid of it because your community is there to back you up. Thank you. Thank you so, so much. This has been a pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you, Tramika. Thank you. Well, that's it. I hope you enjoyed today's show. You can find more episodes at www.deepdivestb.com or you can subscribe through your favorite podcast subscription service. Until next time, thanks for listening.